What will be left of Twitter by the time Elon Musk is done with it? Anything? Whether you're coming at climate change from the global south or north, it is a challenging story to cover. And art for politics sake is all over social media in Iran. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we dig into the coverage and analyze how news gets reported. It has been less than a month now since the site known as social media's public square, Twitter, became one man's domain. And it has not gone well for Elon Musk. The billionaire has flip-flopped on policy so many times that his employees don't know if they're coming or going, whether they still have a job or not. Twitter's users sometimes don't know what they're looking at anymore. Those blue ticks that used to indicate an account was verified, real, can now be bought for $8 a month. The upshot of putting user authentication up for sale has had advertisers pulling their money from the platform, not something Twitter can afford. Like so many other policies that Musk has come up with, that one's been put on hold but only after the damage to Twitter's reputation had been done. With advertisers fleeing and a recession looming, our starting point this week is this question. Can Twitter survive Elon Musk? It really pains me to see Twitter crumbling like this. Musk clearly does not know what he's doing. We've seen huge huge layoffs as well as resignations over the last few weeks and I think that's testament to just quite how chaotic Elon Musk has been. Musk is showing us how vulnerable spaces that we have online truly are when they are controlled by billionaires. For a man who made his name making electric cars, now travels on his own private jet, wants to get into space travel and colonize Mars, what's another ego trip? But his $44 billion takeover of Twitter has brought Elon Musk crashing back down to Earth. Twitter's workers had that sinking feeling when Musk arrived there, having bought his way into an industry in which he has zero experience, acting like he knew it all. On bots, spam, and fake accounts, Musk devised a simple money-making solution. Charge users, any user, $8 a month for the blue tick that indicates the account is verified. What could possibly go wrong? What we saw immediately when this program launched was a wave of the internet doing what the internet does best, which is mocking the powers that be. So Elon Musk has had a whole range of fake accounts appear in the last few weeks that have impersonated him, all of which have been banned. We've also seen organizations starting to be hoodwinked. Um, the biggest example of this is Eli Lilly, the global pharmaceutical company, where an individual pretended to be their account, paid $8 to set up Twitter Blue, and then said to the entire world that they would make insulin free, and that knocked hundreds of millions of dollars off the share price of the company. And that tweet stayed live on Twitter with the verification mark for almost six hours. And it created complete chaos for customers who saw it and didn't know if it was real. 
his new verification system has caused brands like Eli Lilly to say, we are now removing ourselves from the Twitter platform and no longer advertising. And many brands are watching and seeing what's happening to Eli Lilly and saying to themselves, this might not be the best place for us to invest our dollars right now. And the revenue business at Twitter is almost solely focused 90 plus percent on advertising revenue. It's incredibly powerful to see the speed with which brands are pulling out of one of the world's largest social media platforms. Musk's approach to Twitter is essentially chaos and brands hate chaos. This story would be funny if Elon Musk's missteps and the potential implications weren't so serious. The blue tick debacle is a byproduct of Musk's plan, which he made clear before the takeover became official, to quote, authenticate all humans. It took less than 24 hours for users actually to start abusing this new Twitter subscription plan. The problems he tried to address at Twitter, bots, spam, and disinformation are real and have been for years. But Musk's simple approach that money can buy you verification overlooks the need that so many users have to post on social media without revealing their names, for good reason. Victims of, for instance, domestic abuse who want to uh, raise concerns about their partner will use fake names or no name at all in order to do that. Whistleblowers wanting to raise concerns about big companies and organisations might also highlight those issues through a, a, an anonymous account. And getting rid of that impacts not just them, but also many people in the developing world where authoritarian regimes crack down and identify people who are seen as dissidents and put them in prison. Take Saudi Arabia as, a, as an example. Uh, when the Saudi government managed to infiltrate the headquarters of Twitter and extract personal information of Saudi dissidents that uh, were using Twitter anonymously, uh, many of them were forcefully disappeared uh, in jail. Abdurrahman Zathan, he is a Saudi activist who, because of the Twitter infiltration or spy operation, was unmasked. Then he was sentenced for 20 years simply because he was tweeting and expressing himself online. Anonymity is incredibly important for marginalized people online. And if Twitter were to lose that, it would be a huge blow to freedom of expression and the traditional role that Twitter has played in the internet ecosystem. Twitter has actually been one of the greatest advocates historically for the right to anonymity online, although one of Musk's first actions when he took power there was to fire the woman who led that effort. She was not alone. Musk laid off half of Twitter's workforce, roughly 4,000 people. He told those who remained that to keep their jobs, they would have to opt in to long hours and hardcore working conditions. When not enough did, he closed the company's offices, locking his staff out. The brief reign so far of billionaire Elon Musk at Twitter has unleashed a wave of tumult throughout the company. Among those already fired, Twitter's human rights specialists, its AI ethics team, content moderators who spot and scrub toxic and dangerous content. So we contacted the company's press office, what's left of it, and Musk himself, tweeting him this question. How do you expect Twitter 
to shield users from hate speech and disinformation, which the platform already struggles with when all you have left is a skeleton staff. We're still waiting for Musk to reply. Elon Musk has said from the beginning that he wants to curb mis- and disinformation and he really wants to focus on content moderation and keeping Twitter a healthy place, but he has gotten rid of many of those employees. And it's hard to envision a world in which Twitter can continue to do a great job when there are only 3,500 employees left at the company and there are over a billion tweets that are going out in a day. For the majority of users uh, of Twitter who are outside of the US, we have been always struggling with a lack of resources that would enable Twitter and other social media platforms to moderate content in non-English languages in a speedy and critical manner. Hate speech, uh, gender-based violence, uh, disinformation, influence operations, uh, smear campaigns, all of those have been happening at an increasing speed on Twitter. And so the fact that he just went ahead and even cut down on already stressed staff raises big, big red flags about the future of the, platform, of the platform. Twitter is far from the only tech company facing tough times. The entire sector is headed for a downturn, and the billionaires behind big tech are shaving costs. Mark Zuckerberg and Meta have laid off 11,000 employees. Amazon, owned by Jeff Bezos, another 10,000. Multiple other platforms, from delivery companies to payment services, are doing the same. But most of them are trimming their workforces, anticipating a recession. What Elon Musk is doing is different. Having spent $44 billion on a company he said was already threatened with going bankrupt, he has since gutted it. Twitter may not survive. Twitter was a very critical public space for many activists since the 2011 Arab uprisings and before that during the Iran revolution for the Black Lives Matter, for Palestinians, for many, many communities that have been historically silenced. These platforms are extremely important spaces for them to organize, to share information, to document human rights abuses. So it's really sad to see it uh, falling apart like this. There is a reason why Twitter is the chosen platform for world leaders, for presidents, for the news media. There is no other tool that is real time, that is this relevant. And so it's scary to watch Elon Musk come in and potentially you know, ruin this company for people around the world who rely on this. There would be a massive hole, not just in the social media ecosystem, but in the world. And it is devastating to watch. With the close of COP27 in Egypt, another climate summit has come and gone. But as we reported last week, tangible signs of progress are difficult to detect. What with promises of meaningful action repeatedly getting broken. Journalists covering climate change, especially those whose beat includes on-the-ground reporting, work in difficult conditions, some of which can be deadly. We spoke with two journalists, a Brazilian reporter based on the edge of the Amazon and a British editor in London on the challenges that all climate reporters face regardless of where they are.
how to deal with such a complicated and at times depressing topic and bring it home to audiences. Extreme temperatures, wildfires, drought and flooding have all been made worse. Exactly what science told us would happen is happening. It is a kind of unusual beat, if you like, to be covering as a journalist climate change. You have to be pretty robust and resilient because you're just relentlessly every day dealing with a profoundly difficult topic. It always feels a bit one step forward, two steps back, or on a good day, two steps forward, one step back. A gente está extrapolando o nosso papel de jornalista. Eu até digo assim, no jornalismo hoje não dá para a gente atuar mais como de forma com aqueles preceitos ocidentais de distanciamento. Tem como, às vezes as pessoas contam unicamente com como nós, jornalistas, para divulgar uma situação. Então, eu sou jornalista aqui de Manaus, né? eu moro em Manaus, meu nome é Laís Farias. Desde quase 20 anos para cá, né? quando eu comecei a atuar na, na pauta de que se chama socioambiental. Né? Eu acho que eu fui uma das primeiras repórteres que, que começou a abordar com muita profundidade o tema das mudanças climáticas aqui na nossa região. É, então foi um assunto muito que começou a me interessar e eu também estava numa redação de jornal onde eu tinha o apoio de, dos meus editores e naquele momento pouco se falava, por exemplo, de desmatamento, de avanço de incêndios florestais na, na, na mídia, na imprensa local e regional. A Amazônia Real ela foi criada em 2013, é, num contexto de grande mobilização aqui no, no, no Brasil, né? Também havia todo um movimento de rua e também teve um momento de, foi um período também de grande crise no jornalismo brasileiro. Então eu, duas amigas minhas, jornalistas também me convidaram para fazer parte do, do, do criar uma agência de jornalismo naquele momento. A nossa linha editorial daquele momento era o quê? A gente iria mostrar as, as demandas, os problemas, as violações de direitos das populações amazônicas que raramente apareciam, tinham é, é, repercussão na, na mídia, na mídia local, na mídia regional, na mídia nacional. Não tínhamos nem apoio financeiro. É, nos, quando a gente fundou a Amazônia Real, nos chamavam de vocês são muito doidas, vocês são muito loucas, porque na nossa região há uma predominância, há uma hegemonia do, de, de mídias que a maioria é mantida por recursos públicos, por interesses políticos, interesses econômicos. Então, muitas vezes, certas matérias, certas reportagens, certas histórias que contamos, não podem, que, que, que devem ser contadas, não, 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 não é retratada na maioria dos veículos de mídia que tem aqui na região, porque há muita interferência do, do, dos interesses econômicos e de grandes interesses econômicos, grandes, muitas multinacional ou local, ou por interesses políticos. Então, eu citei o caso da situação de Yanomami, com presença grande de grande presença de garimpeiro, né, de mineradores ilegais, explorando aquela, aquele território, tirando o ouro, contaminando os rios, contaminando a floresta, causando a morte de muitos indígenas, é, de uma floresta que, que, é, que deveria estar sendo preservada. É uma história muito impactante e é uma história que parece que sem fim, né, é um pesadelo que sempre, que sempre é, acontece 
que, não, que perdura. Isso é importante mostrar, porque muitas vezes o Estado brasileiro, né, a agência governamental, o agente público, ele passa uma imagem lá fora, nos outros países, que ele, como se ele protegesse a floresta, mas não é verdade. Não é fácil fazer jornalismo na Amazônia, é, por vários motivos, né? motivos de que nós também somos submetidos a alguma situação de ameaça, embora a, no caso da Amazônia Real a gente tenha protocolos de proteção, protocolos de cuidado, nós temos protocolos mínimos para quando a gente viaja, quando a gente vai nos lugares para fazer, retratar, por exemplo, uma ameaça é, de grandes fazendeiros numa terra indígena que está invadindo a terra indígena, a gente tem nossos protocolos. Eu tenho um grande jornalista, um grande líder indígena, que se chama Ailton Krenak, ele sempre diz que quem trabalha na Amazônia é jornalista de guerra. Então, é, é difícil, mas esse é o nosso trabalho, né? esse é o nosso comprometimento, essa é a nossa missão como jornalista. There are some parallels, I think, with kind of war correspondence. Sometimes it feels hugely unjust, unfair, there's extremes, there's, there's violence sometimes, there's profound sadness and and frustration, you know, all, all of the elements that would go into covering, you know, a conflict or a war you see playing out all the time with um, climate change. I'm Leo Hickman. I'm the editor of Carbon Brief, which is a specialist website based in the UK, which focuses on climate change. So Carbon Brief was launched about 10 years ago and the, the original sort of founding mission was to try and be a counterpoint, a rebuttal to some of the poorly informed media coverage around climate change, specifically climate science. We've recently published a week-long series of articles focusing in on this the very hot topic of what is called loss and damage. There's a kind of fundamental injustice with climate change. It's, it's affecting the poorest people on the planet who are at least responsible for climate change. And there's long been this idea that there should be some reparations or actually compensation from the richer countries to the poorer countries for the damages being caused. And it's a very, very fraught and, and difficult debate. So Carbon Brief published a big series of articles really examining and explaining um, this concept of loss and damage. People had long known about this term and sort of really wanted this in-depth analysis and explanation of it. I personally have been going to COPS um, for, a, say, a decade or so. It's arguably the most complicated set of negotiations in human history. All the world's countries have to come together to deal with a fundamental existential crisis like climate change. There's, there's nothing to compare, not even a world war, in terms of the complexity of how humanity comes together to deal with this. And there is a sense of deja vu, the same, you know, you see the same negotiators, the same dynamics going on. And you do have good days where you feel there's hope and there's progress, but you also have pretty, <laughs> quite a lot of bad days where you think, wow, this latest bit of science is pretty profoundly, you know, bad news. Um, and you look at the politicians and look at their response and you think, mm, there is a big mismatch here. We're already seeing pretty profound impacts of climate change around the world. This year has seen an extraordinary range of record-breaking extreme weather events. From floods in Nigeria, 
epic heat waves in Pakistan and India, huge, huge, profound heat wave in China, saw one in the UK, wildfires in, in, a, in the US. It's just been an endless list and that feels different to what it was even five, ten years ago from when I was covering this. You're dealing with a fundamentally depressing and difficult topic for humanity. I don't think that's ever really been truly studied, to be honest, about what the impact on this kind of relentlessly difficult and depressing subject is, is actually having on the journalists who are trying to relay that to, to their audiences. Então, é, isso é o nosso trabalho. É, cansativo é, mas é algo nosso, né? A gente foi, fez uma escolha. A nossa escolha é essa, esse jornalismo que tem que trazer uma justiça, justiça social, justiça ambiental. É um jornalismo que emanciba essas populações, esses grupos sociais. Então, é, eu não me sinto é, é, frustrada por isso. Eu não sei até quando, talvez até quando o corpo físico talvez não aguentar, né? Mas esse é o nosso trabalho, né? And finally, women with their hair out, protesters with fists in the air, school children defying authority. Those are just some of the images of resistance coming out of Iran. It's been two months now since the death in police custody of Masa Amini, a 22-year-old arrested for the crime, allegedly, of not wearing her headscarf properly. In a country where the mainstream media and the internet are strictly controlled, Iranians are still getting the word out on social media, and some are using their art to tell a story the authorities would rather go untold. We'll leave you now with some examples of their work, and we'll see you next time here at The Listening Post.